This is ContraZoom. Where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I'm Rachel Ho. On today's episode, we are covering the 25th annual Fantasia Festival, a yearly movie fest based out of Montreal that covers the best genre films, specializing in horror, sci-fi, and thrillers, with an emphasis on movies coming out of Asia. We saw a bunch of films this year, and we're here to talk about some of our favorites. So, Rachel, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Actually, I didn't know Fantasia is focusing on films coming out of Asia. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, originally they it was called Fant, F-A-N-T, dash uh-huh. Asia. Oh. And so they were originally importing um, Chinese and Korean films and Japanese anime films. That was their specialty for the first couple of years. That's interesting. Had no idea. The more you know. Yeah. The more you know. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm good. But thank you. Yeah. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm I'm doing well. This was a this was a fun festival. It ran for like a month. So it was both a bit of a blessing and a curse because I kept being like, oh, yeah, I've got time. I'll do it another day. And then, you know, also with the so much time, it's like, oh, wow, I can watch so many. So how did you feel about uh, a festival being available online for a month? Like you said, it's a blessing and a curse. Like you you have a lot of time, which is great. Like that that's always nice. I mean, some of them, they just go by so quickly that you you're just not able to at least this one you can spread it out and watch as many movies as you want to watch um Mm -hmm. but then i mean you can look at the date stamps of my reviews that went up and it all got clustered around a particular time because yeah you just kind of procrastinate i guess is human nature or that just shows that maybe we should probably get better organized but you were also doing the vancouver queer film festival though too and that's hard to do two film festivals at the exact same time even if one is like a month long it's hard to do an overlap yeah i I shot myself in the foot a little bit there um but i I still feel like i got a a good gist of both of the festivals but yeah luckily like if if they were like sort of like both one week festivals or, or both like slightly overlapping and short festivals. I don't think I could have done both, but because Fantasia was basically a whole month, I watched a few stopped, took a break only did Vancouver queer film festival films. And then I went back to Fantasia fest. And, and that way it's nice. Like there's a lot of flexibility and uh, mm-hmm. I guess too, because it was more online, like it would kind of suck if, I mean, we're not, neither of us are, are located in Montreal, but if you're trying to go in for the festival, you would really have to time like what days you're going to stay over and things like that. Whereas something like TIFF, for instance, because it's so clustered, you could stay for the whole festival if you want to, because um, mm-hmm. it's pretty reasonable, but I don't know how many people would stay in Montreal for a full month just to catch everything at the, <laughs> at a film festival, unless you're very yeah. committed to, to Fantasia. So in a way, like having it online was was pretty good for that. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I-, I agree with that. Now, I think we should continue with our usual tradition of uh, <laughs> covering film festivals. What did you think of the film festival? What did you think of their portal? How was the uh, selection of movies? All that sort of fun stuff. I like the portal. Again, great, great setup. It was very clear. I don't. I think one of the more... I don't want to say it's annoying because I think if you were organized, then it wasn't a huge deal. But they did have quite a few movies that were either so they had a section that were on demand or there was a section of movies that were scheduled so there were only particular dates that uh, you could access them and you know if there was a particular film or title that you were looking for that probably wasn't a huge deal but 
it does it did make it a little annoying where you see one you go oh yeah i really want to watch that then you go a week later and you're like oh that link expired excellent so you can't you can't watch it but i liked the variety of the movies like this kind of a film festival is pretty much up my street because it's you know sci-fi and action i actually didn't end up watching too much sci-fi funny enough but um yeah i I like the type of movies that um fantasia is going for so that that worked for me um how how about you how'd you find it well this was your first time right yes yeah it was my first time doing fantasia yeah it was my first time too uh yeah i i agree with a lot of what you're saying you know as far as the certain time frame that some movies were playing that obviously was a bit frustrating when you're when you're at home and you're like but this festival's for a full month but then if you're <laughs> thinking of like if i was in person going to this festival i'd have maybe what like two screenings a yeah. chance to see it and if i didn't have the time or i was seeing something else then i'd just be sol sort of thing so like i kind of get both sides of it but like when it's almost everything is online. It's a little frustrating. Then like, Oh, I wish I could have seen that. Yeah. And then of course there were some movies that were only playing in person. Like they did a special preview for the suicide squad. Yeah. Because James Gunn has premiered a few of his films at Fantasia. So I think that was him returning the favor a little bit. And there was the, the new Nicholas cage movie, um, ghosts of Scion or something like that. I, I can't, I don't remember what it was called. That was only in person. And that one sort of seemed completely bonkers that I would have been absolutely down for watching as well. But yeah, overall, you know, I'm not a big horror genre person as people that listen to the show know by now, but I've slowly been kind of dipping my toes into it and trying to watch more. And, and so I was very interested in a lot of the stuff that I was playing. Some of the stuff just wasn't really up my alley, but overall, everything that I watched, I think I, I enjoyed very much so so i have no complaints about the actual selection it like when there's i don't know how many movies would you say we're playing 50 70 movies yeah and quite a the few large handful i saw i enjoyed most of like that's going to be any festival there's going to be stuff you're interested in stuff you're not interested in so i found the stuff i was interested in yeah i was gonna say when you do film festivals it's always a bit of a mixed bag because you just never know like something the description could sound amazing or the description sounds kind of off. Like, I mean, we're going to get to a movie where both of us kind of read the description and went, eh, I don't know. Like it's, it's a bit off. And then it turns out to be a great movie. Like, and, and then the, the reverse of that is true. Uh, one thing I do mm-hmm. want to add though, about Fantasia is I really liked how, uh, kind of two feet diving into, to, or jumping rather into the deep end um, with the online component. Like they did a lot of stuff of putting the Q and A's on YouTube, doing like live streams of it. And they're there for anybody who wants to watch them still. Like I, I watched a couple of them. They're pretty interesting with the, some of the directors and some of the actors of different movies. Um, and they did, you know, they had kind of parties and like on digital parties and stuff like that. And I, I thought that was like a really good effort, especially considering it's still not a lot of people still aren't comfortable traveling. Um, So I thought they did a really nice job of trying to make it as interactive as, as possible um, given the Mm -hmm. online component. So I think really cool of them to do, because I don't know if any other film festivals really done that quite as to the extent that they have um, not the ones that I've done anyways. Um, Obviously there's a ton of film festivals in the world. So hopefully other ones have done the same thing. I wonder if it's because they've probably screened multiple movies about deadly viruses where uh, <laughs> they ravage the world and there's too many stupid people that just don't listen to the experts. That's true. I was just on Reddit reading some stuff. I'm like in New Zealand of all countries of people just not 
following the rules or doing what's best for for everybody so yeah it's very true i don't know if they meant to do that <laughs> like if fantasia <laughs> meant to show so many movies like that but it is kind of funny that it i mean hey even before pandemic those movies were were popular to an extent like having mm-hmm. because they seemed so distant didn't they like they didn't seem very real <laughs> and now they're yeah they're too real <laughs> quite frankly so I figure we should probably get started talking about some of the movies. We broke yeah, sure. down into different categories. Uh, the first category we're going to talk about is movies that we both saw. So this way we can have a little bit of a dialogue and, and go a bit more in depth if we need to, uh, as opposed to just one person talking at the other. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Once upon a time, there was a girl. She came upon an enchanted castle made of glass. Only people who remembered their names could enter there. We gather in thanks for our sanctuary from the Shred. In a world of madness, we have found order. So the first one that we're going to talk about is Glass House, which is uh, a movie where we actually interviewed the director, Kelsey Egan, heard a couple shows back on Fantasia Fest interviews. So make sure you go and check that out. There'll be a link to that in the show notes as well. But yeah, this was a South African movie where it's really hard to pin down the genre because it really does a little bit of everything. But one that overall I was very impressed with how uh, the director Egan managed to maintain a tone throughout that was so unique to this specific film that I can't really think of anything that it's really comparable to. And I was really impressed by it overall. What about you? Same. I really enjoyed that movie. I think it's, I liked the the concept of the mythology that she builds behind it. It's very creative. And these days it's tough finding a unique film in general. Like you don't see those too often. And some of the things that I liked that in particular that she said in, in our interview with her was like, she doesn't want to talk down to the audience. She trusts that the audience is smart enough to put the pieces together. And her film is very much so that like it's, it's intelligent, it's clever, um, and it's it's got that thrilling component of not a who done it because there isn't necessarily a who done it, but there is a lot of mystery and intrigue involved as well. So it, like it keeps your attention the whole time. I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And and it's got some really phenomenal performances mm-hmm. from its mostly young cast as well. And and I think what people would appreciate about this movie is much like we were kind of joking about, uh, you know maybe Fantasia is good at the internet stuff because of <laughs> screening pandemic type films. So this is a pandemic set film. So it's, it's about uh, an airborne disease that ravages people's brains and makes them lose their memories. Basically. We don't really know what the, uh, the end state of someone is other than being a shell of their former selves. But uh, yeah, it's about this family with a matriarch and there are three daughters and a son. The son has been afflicted by this airborne disease, but he still is sort of there. And then they encounter a young man who ends up being saved by one of the daughters and brought inside of their house and all the family secrets sort of come out. I think what's most interesting about this is at the end of it, you can have a really good dialogue about what the film means, what actually happened. So much so that after we finished interviewing Kelsey Egan, she was asking us what we thought actually happened yeah. at the end of the movie, which I thought was pretty funny. It's cool. I mean, those are the best movies. I think the ones that get you to keep thinking about them and keep talking about them afterwards, you know, off the top of my head, I can think like inception is one of those that I, I mean, most Chris Nolan movies, I think, drive a lot of conversation afterwards of what actually happened. Um, and I, I, yeah, I think that that's, that's a good tr- 
good uh, good trademark of a good movie, I think, is is having something that once the screen fades to black, it the conversation doesn't stop. And one that you like you can keep thinking about too. Like the aesthetic of the movie is something that for some reason pops into my head quite often since we've seen it. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I really liked it. Like I liked the 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 actual glass house that they used um, that was in uh, South Africa. They filmed it and the, like even the clothing that they wore and the different, you know, the, the face coverings, like the, the helmet, the plastic helmet thingy, like the beehive helmet that they, that they fashioned. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Those things are, I, I enjoyed like every aspect of the movie. I thought it was really, really well done. And I'm, I'm excited to see what else she does. Like, I think she'll definitely be somebody that if I, whenever I hear her coming up with a new project, like I'll definitely check it out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the next one uh, that we both watched was a Japanese film called Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes. And this was one that reading the synopsis of <laughs> didn't really intrigue me too much. But you had watched it and, and you were like, you should probably check it out. And I'm so glad that I listened to you because this movie was was bonkers in the best way possible. It was so funny and imaginative and... <laughs> like it's so it's it's almost difficult to describe properly without it sounding too weird in a way that's not interesting but basically it's this man who owns a cafe and he lives above it and he he goes into his room after work one day and his computer turns on and it's him two minutes from the future talking to him so he leaves his apartment and goes down to his cafe and then the cycle repeats itself he sees himself go into his bedroom so he starts talking to him basically reliving that scene and it's basically shot in a way uh that looks like one take so something like 1917 or birdman or something like that if you if you really know the filmmaking aspect you could see the cuts because every once in a while they would basically pause for a second on like a plain white wall or a door or something like that and it's very clear that's where they're doing the cut the 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 hidden cuts for it but yeah then his friends get involved and they bring the computer downstairs and put it in front of the TV and it creates like an infinite time loop sort of thing and it just gets weirder and weirder as it goes on. And and mostly it's so impressive how they manage to film this. Like I, I, I have an idea in my head how they did it and they kind of show you in the end credits. But uh, I'm curious, were you, was that something that you were focusing, focusing on when you were watching it or were you just so immersed in the plot? Uh, definitely the former. So I, I recommended it to you, but I have to like put my hands up and admit that I watched like 10 minutes of the movie and I kind of checked out. I was like, this isn't really for me. Let me just watch something else. Um, and then as I was looking, I thought, I I thought I'll read some reviews on it. And everybody was so like glowing about it. Everyone just had the nicest things to say about it. So I thought I'm missing something here. Give it a shot beyond ten minutes, um, and I went and I and I'm so glad that I I went back and I sucked through and t- to watch the whole thing because yeah I I was really intrigued by the filmmaking I thought it was it was really interesting to me like in terms of the organization that's involved in it the level of rehearsal that they would have had to have done the end bit the little package of behind the scenes it just fascinated me like I loved to see the little bits of how they did it and um like there's one kind of the the climax of the movie it's really interesting the way that they they did they shot some of the effects if you will like they're all practical effects effects and things like that um but also to the story is like it's it's very funny and it's it's very it is silly like i'm not i'm not gonna lie it's a silly movie but it's really really delightful i think that's like the best word that i can use to describe it um 
and you said it really well too. Like it's not one that when you read the description of it, it's, it's not most, it doesn't sound like the most compelling movie, but you and I talked about it too. It's like, we don't know what we could have written to make it sound more compelling because you don't want to give the whole story away either. Like you don't want to, you want to save some stuff too. So it's a, it's a difficult movie to describe, but certainly I think if anybody comes across it, um, whether it's at film festival or I don't know if it's on VOD or something like that, um, definitely check it out. It's, it's, it's not very long either. I think it's just, I want to say just over an hour. Um, yeah, it's like 70 minutes. Yeah. So it's, it's really worth your time. It's especially for people who are interested in how films are made. I think it's, it's an incredible movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I really agree with all that. And, and I think the most impressive scene I would say is when it gets to the point near the end where they have, they managed to create a feedback loop of about like eight or nine yeah. <laughs> moments because each time each time the computer is there it's it's adding an extra two minutes so mm-hmm. they managed to get it i don't know like 20 minutes into the future basically and you're watching this and it's just so impressive how certain screens will be showing different things and you're waiting for how they're all going to connect because eventually everything that you see happen in the future they they do it themselves so it's just so interesting how they manage to do all of that in in the camera angles or like it's it's phenomenal and should add, it's it's the director. Um, it's his first film, like it's his first feature film that he's he's. Been. I actually think it might be the first thing he's directed. Period. Like I could be wrong wow. about that, but um, and also shot on an iPhone. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. Re- yeah. Saw that in the in the credits. Yeah. Yeah. I was watching it. I went. He's just holding an iPhone like on a tripod thingy, like one of those handheld tripods. Yeah. I thought that's incredible and. I think it, it's one of those movies that when you describe those little bits, like, oh, it looks like it looks like it's shot in one take. It's the director's first movie. It's um, shot in an iPhone. There's you know it, all this kind of stuff. It sounds kind of gimmicky. Um, and it could be like it could have easily been a gimmick. But I think it's one of those that it's a gimmick, but it works really well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. So the next movie I want to talk about is one called Art Kabuki. Uh, this was one that I thought was going to be a documentary, but it's not really. Uh, it's basically a filmed theatrical production of a Japanese kabuki show. And for anyone that isn't familiar with kabuki, it is sort of this marriage between song and dance and performance. And it's very unique to, to to Japanese history where they have these very elaborate costumes and makeup. And it started out as an all-female thing, and then women got banned from it, so now it's an all-male thing. And so you have men playing both the male and the female parts to great effect. Uh, but yeah, so so I thought this was sort of like a behind-the-scenes how they put on a kabuki show. But no, this is literally them just kind of putting a a greatest hits package together of some of the more popular kabuki performances and stories together into one film and and using a whole theater to really sort of immerse us because they're they're able to really do more with the lighting and the sound and everything like that and do super close-ups of the performers and the musicians on stage and all that sort of great stuff and so this was something that was expecting one thing and then it ended up being something completely different uh but you were you reviewed this for for pov i believe mm-hmm. uh would you classify this as a documentary because i don't know if i would <laughs> it's i mean it was labeled as a documentary which um i mean you could talk maybe to my editor at pov and see if they <laughs> later on would have had agreed to to post it had had they realized what it was but um 
It's tough to say. Like it's one of the it's it's kind of like I don't know if we talked about it on the podcast or if it was just you and I talking, but we were saying like Hamilton, right? Like what is Hamilton, the 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 stage production that they showed? Was it it wasn't a movie, like it couldn't contend for the Oscars. It wasn't TV necessarily because it wasn't on TV. So what is it? And I I guess documentary is the only place to put it. Like I've actually never really been too into watching, um, I guess, cinematic takes of live performances. I know that a lot of different artists like singers do them um, for their concerts. I, I don't know what those mm. are considered to be, if those are their own genre or if you, if you have to put them into a, a category like film tv documentary what is it you know i i i don't know if i consider it a documentary but it was enjoyable like i i think it's i think it's cool like how japanese culture tends to be very um ancestral based like they're, they're they're very proud of their culture and their history and um quite precious of it and i think it was cool that they did it like they were using pretty modern cameras and very modern shooting techniques um, to show this. So it's kind of like a nice uh, juxtaposition between the two, like the medium and what the actual performance is. Um, And I mean, given the state of the world right now, most of us aren't traveling and especially internationally when most of us aren't traveling. So the next time that you're going to be able to go to Japan might be next year, might be two years, might be who knows like how long it's going to be from now. So it's kind of cool that, there's an opportunity to watch something so distinctly Japanese um, that you're able to just watch it on TV. I mean, that that's or in a, in a movie theater, however they're going to air it. Um, I, I thought that that was probably the coolest thing about it is that, yeah, it's not quite a documentary, but, you know, gives people an opportunity to see something that might not normally have been accessible to them. Pandemic or not, to be honest, not everybody can fly to Japan. Yeah. Did you have a favorite performance of the film? Hmm. Good question. I feel like I watched it a long time ago now. I'm putting you on the spot a little bit. I know. I'm trying to think of them. I don't really. How about you? What would you like? Mine was probably the Four Directions performance, which was at the very beginning. So it was was a performance basically celebrating the gods of each of the, the cardinal directions, North, East, South, West. And so they had one of the dancers and one of the musicians. And so I liked how they were able to sort of make each one so unique and individual by playing with the different types of music that they were able to make from a single instrument. So whether it was a a drum or I, I'm blanking on all the different instruments that they have. They had a ton, Traditional yeah. names. Um, but yeah, just the way that they were able to sort of do that one-on-one companion piece of, of making something very unique. And, and that was one that I really liked. Yeah. I think my, my, I'm going to have a cop-out answer. And I just say like, for me, I don't know if it was any particular story within the Kabuki. I think I just, I really appreciated just the kind of the details that are in it that you might not be able to see when, if you did go to watch it live, um, you know, getting a real close up at the makeup and the, the set design and the costumes, I, that for me was the standout, not necessarily the story, which might show maybe that's my ignorance on my part. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's totally fair. Like it, that was a, a real highlight of the film. Like, yeah, it, it's hard not to be so impressed by the, the talent and the skill on display and how everything sort of comes together in this beautiful piece of work. Yeah. And it's, it's cool because it was shot at the beginning of lockdown in Japan and 
it was just a bunch of artists who didn't have work. Like they, they couldn't work because theaters were closed. Um, so it's, it's a nice, we talk a little bit, we've, you know, we've talked a little bit here and there especially with the, with the pandemic type movies. Um, and this is kind of a nice show of what some artists were doing when things did shut down. And I, I think that that's quite beautiful in its own way. It actually leads very nicely to the short film that I think that you want to talk about next. Yeah. So let's uh, transition over to that. And the last one that we both saw was a short film called Last Night at the Strip Club. The last night I worked at the club, I danced my last set. I just wasn't feeling it. I didn't want to be there anymore. Not in a pandemic. It just didn't feel safe. So I got my things together, got on my bike, and went home. Two days later, the club was closed. It is actually a CBC-produced documentary Mm -hmm. short uh, about a woman who was working at a strip club as a dancer, and then when the pandemic hit, she sort of had to reevaluate what she wanted to do in her career and how she wanted to move forward, both in the sex work world and in in general. Uh, and this is a documentary that's only 11 minutes long. And, and the reason why I really wanted to watch it is it was actually the cinematographer was a friend of mine from high school, Nina, who I've I've seen her do music videos for an artist. I'm a fan of Ralph, and I'm so proud of her, all the work that she's been able to do. And so it's really awesome that her short was playing at, at this festival as well. And so I recommend it to you. And in the end, I think like we were both like really impressed with yeah. like the quality of this documentary for being 11 minutes and, and what a picture it paints. hundred percent. Like it was creative way to tell the story too. like her putting on her makeup. And I mean, that's a very YouTube vibe, right? Like a very uh, beauty community of yesteryear. If anybody watch those videos you'll know what i'm talking about it's like a girl just kind of sitting in her bedroom putting her makeup on and talking you know about her day or what was going on with her um so i I like that angle i love this i don't want to call it a trend because i hope it's not a trend i hope it's here to stay um i love the new approach though that media is having towards sex work i think that it's cool and very emboldening that we've got sex workers who are able to take more agency into their work and, and not be, you know, I, I, not, and have full over ownership over, over what they do um, with their bodies and how they sell themselves. You know, I only fans was in the news the last few days about wanting to uh, ban sexually explicit uh, content, material content is the best word to say it. And, they've since reversed it but i think that it's there's a there's a nice emerging new wave of thinking that you know we can make, create safe spaces for sex workers to work in and for them to use the media in the way that they want to do it and so hopefully what that does is promote a healthier attitude towards sex work um but also creates a, a healthier environment a safer environment for them to work in um and hopefully cut down on you know any exploitation or any non-consensual sex work as well so i i I loved Mm -hmm. it for so many different reasons it's funny it's really well done it's it has a great message in it to the point and um again another example of what some people were you know creative people were doing during the pandemic and um which hopefully is inspirational to people and it's interesting because 
it almost doesn't even feel like a, a documentary. It, yeah. it, like I, I don't mean this in a negative way, but it's it's staged in such a way that it just feels like it's it is somewhat like it's a documentary in the sense that it's it's a real person telling her own mm-hmm. experiences, but it's not a documentary in a traditional way. It's not like, you know, here's a talking head and here's archival footage yeah. and, and here's, you know, photos and things like that. It's recreation, which is a, a, a form of documentary. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, you know, her doing a, a mock YouTube tutorial uh, of her getting into her stripper character basically uh telling about her history and then talking about uh her last day on the shift and it's a recreation of her playing both the the stripper and the uh skeezy male customer (laughs) and things like that so it's a it's a very very unique documentary that doesn't feel like a documentary it's actually streaming on cbc and cbc gem right now for free so i will link to that in the show notes for people to check out but like even if my friend wasn't the the DOP on this. I would have been blown away by by this cinematography because it, it is a gorgeous film to look at. I'm, I'm glad your friend was the DOP though, because you know we might not have watched it otherwise. Not to say that it wasn't like compelling, but you know we were, as we said from the very top, both of us were quite busy, and so there was a lot of stuff to watch, and it was a good one to have on our radar. Um, and yeah, it was a good one to put on our radar. And I, I'm really, really, really glad. Oh, what I was going to say was I didn't even think about it being a documentary until you just said it. Uh, <laughs> in my head, I was like, oh, it's just a short film. Like, obviously, it's it's real. I know it's based on 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 real events and real people, um, the person in the in the film itself. But it never kind of clicked to my head that, uh, yeah, it is. It is basically a documentary, but it is very much so a different type of documentary. As Art Kabuki yes. is as well, but Art Kabuki is questionably a documentary. Yes, yes, I, I agree. So uh, definitely check that out. It's a Canadian short film. Like I said, I'll link to it in the show notes for people to check out, but it is free on CBC Gem and CBC.ca. So now we are going to very briefly sort of touch on some films that were playing during the festival that we have actually seen and covered during other festivals. The first one being Alien on Stage. I mentioned at the beginning of the episode how we interviewed the director of Glass House. Well, we also interviewed the directors of Alien on Stage. And so I rewatched this movie, but we watched this during, it was South by Southwest, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's kind of it's kind of nice when you you start to see the same films pop up, especially smaller more intimate films where it's almost like, yeah, good for you for for being able to play for more crowds and, and hopefully you you get an audience there. But uh yeah, for people that haven't seen Alien on stage, it it follows a group of bus drivers in in rural England who decide to put on their yearly theatrical production and in this one particular year they do a recreation of the film Alien and how it became a bit of a uh, cult phenomenon in in London and ended up playing in the West End Theatre District as well. So just a fun, you know, happy, heartwarming little documentary about a little theatre group that sort of could. Absolutely. It was, it was gr- I was really happy to revisit it. Um, well, I think it was for both of us, it was one of our favourites coming out of South by Southwest too. Uh, it's a unique idea, and the people in it are just so you know captivating and you just want to be friends with them and it's such a great underdog story of you know a group of bus drivers in dorset who do amdram and they were staging this play that one of the sons wrote like one of the actor's sons wrote it 
and they were doing this thing and then it just kind of happened to catch the eye of two people two two uh young women and who had filmmaking aspirations themselves and they made it into a documentary and then now that documentary has played at I mean, not not even just in North America, but it's like been around the world. So I think that it's such a cool story of the beginnings of what makes a documentary, the, the content of the documentary, the subject um, to where it is today. So, I mean, it, it would be so cool to see where it goes in the future. And I'm interested, similar to Kelsey Egan, I'm interested to see, you know, where Danielle and Lucy go after this, like if they're going to keep doing documentaries or if there's features in their in their uh, future. Like I, I love a story like that. I think it's really cool. Yeah. So much for the reason why the audience enjoyed the production of this. If you're a fan of alien, you will enjoy this film. It starts out where you're wondering, is this going to be a bit of a, a train wreck or what's happening? <laughs> and the more you watch it, the more you're just like really rooting for these guys to succeed. And the appreciation that they get shown by, by the live crowd is just really makes you so happy for everyone involved. So the next movie that we both watched previously at another festival is Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched. Folk horror is based upon the juxtaposition of the prosaic and the uncanny. It's strange things found in fields, the darkness in children's play. Ancient wisdoms, if you like, that have been long repressed and forgotten. Uh, I'm trying to remember, did we also watch this at South by Southwest? It was South by Southwest, yeah. There we go. My my memory is fading <laughs> and I didn't make good enough notes to be able to say this off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, this is a, a, almost like a four-hour documentary about the history of folk horror in cinema and how it started out as a sort of a niche subgenre of, of horror films in England and how it is spread throughout the world and what folk horror means. And it's if if you love you know your, the history of movies and and everything like that, this is like a, a amazing scholarly piece that doesn't feel like you're watching you know some boring stuffy professor's lecture. And so it's it's really great one. And you actually just ended up buying uh, a box set that included this Severn Films, which the director Kira Janess uh, of of Woodlands Dark and Daysby, which is a board member of. Severn Films is putting out this giant folk horror anthology and it includes this documentary. I, I told you about this and within half an hour you messaged <laughs> me back saying you had bought it. So that's impressive. I'm like, I, I love, I, I'm very particular. I think most people are these days of what physical media they buy just because one, you know, we have a lot of stuff. I think I feel like everybody's got a lot of stuff. Um, and unfortunately, it is easy just to get stuff, you know, to pay or rent something online now. And, and you don't necessarily need to have the Blu-ray or the DVD. So I'm fairly particular about it. But when you messaged me and said, you know, hey, did you have you looked at this box set yet? I immediately jumped on it. I think I was in the middle of doing something, which is why it took me 30 minutes. Um, if I was at my desk <laughs> right then, it would have taken like less than a minute for me to to do it. But yeah, I was I was really excited at the idea of it. Um, having the documentary but then a selection of movies um not every they mention i can't remember what the number is now but they say i, I want to say like two three hundred movies or something like that in the in the documentary itself like they they call out quite a few different folk horror films not just in uh north america or in england but around the world um and they've got a pretty good selection of of films that are 
if my memory is serving me correct, there's some from like Norway, there's a Canadian one, there's a Spanish speaking one, there's one from Asia as well. Um, so I think that's really cool. And I think if anybody's into folk horror or you're into, um, into film history, I think it'd be, a, it's a really worthwhile box set to have. I don't know why I'm like promoting it as if I'm making money off of it, but you know, it's, if, if you're into it, um, I'd recommend it too, but I love that documentary, obviously, like I'm, I'm buying it. So I, I, I really enjoyed it. And, um, yeah, it's, it's cool. It's, it's nice to have in a, in its own kind of a very focused three, four hours of nothing but folk horror talk um, because the history of it is so rich and, and very interesting as well. So, and it's a very well done documentary as well, just on top of that. Yeah. And like, I'll say this as someone who uh, there's a letterbox list that lists every yeah. movie mentioned in this film. And I think I've seen maybe like five of them <laughs> and some of them are more of like passing mention. Some of the like Midsommar and uh, there's a, there's a couple other ones where they get a bit more of a, a reference mm-hmm. throughout it. I've seen them, but yeah, I think I've only seen like five of them and I was absolutely blown away by this documentary. It is, is so fascinating for anyone that, that likes listening to people to talk about film. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably going to like that documentary. Very true. Yeah, it's very true. Cause they tie like historical context in as well into the myths and the, the actual folk stories that are, you know, in it. And, um, that makes it alone for me. Like if you're a history buff too, it just makes it really interesting to see everything tied together. So the uh, last one that I had previously seen, and you had not seen this one, was Under the Open Sky. I watched it during the ja- Toronto Japanese Film Festival. It tells the story of a elderly man who's being released from prison after serving a sentence due to his involvement in the Yakuza. And it's him trying to get his life back on track while also dealing with all of the obstacles put in his way of someone who is a former Yakuza member and what society will or will not allow in their integration back into society. This this features a, a towering performance by by the lead actor in it and, and one I was a really big fan of. And so if you if the, this does sound interesting, then make sure you go back and listen to our Toronto Japanese Film Festival wrap up of that or read my review about it because this is this is one that's probably going to end up in my top 10 of the year list as also mentioned in our best of the year so far episode uh i i've raved about this movie quite a bit uh and so i was really happy to see that it was also playing at fantasia fest i was so sad that i missed it this was one of those you know we said it at the beginning sometimes you click on and then a link expires this was one of those links that expired and i was so upset that i had missed it again um but i'm gonna i'm gonna try to find a way to watch it before the end of the year um because it Great. yeah that way we can finally have a real discussion about it yeah I, i'd really really want to watch it and um hopefully i mean hopefully there's there's a way to watch it after all these film festival runs so i'm hoping maybe i'll get in contact with like the press or something like that. I wonder if that could do that. Yeah. Yeah. See, we'll see. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, All right. So uh, the next section is we're going to kind of talk about movies that only one of us saw. uh, And the one that I want to talk about is a film called tombs of the blind dead. This is actually not a new film at all. One thing that's very interesting that Fantasia Fest does is they also present remastered films. So this is a, this is a 1970s early zombie film 
where it was made uh, in Spain and Portugal. So it's a Spanish language film and it only came out a few years after George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead. And so the zombie genre still was very new and the rules were still being written. And so this film kind of got to do what it wanted to do with this zombie trope. And it was very fascinating because basically it's this tale of how some Knights Templar and and, um, Inquisition era... Spain, how they wanted all this power and live forever so they would eat people alive and then they were banished and then I'm assuming they were eventually somehow buried but they are now these skeletal figures that come out at night and look for humans to eat and they find some and then when they eat these people they turn into zombies that we know of so it's sort of an interesting play where we've got these sort of skeletal creatures that eat people that they're not quite human they're not really zombies I don't really know what they are but they turn people into zombies uh but really the point of me watching this was sort of to see what a remastered film would look like and the it was done by synapse films a company based out of michigan and it looks gorgeous the way that they're i'm guessing a lot of movies like this where they're sort of b movies if you want to even call it that um exploitation flicks i'm guessing weren't uh, preserved very well and in this movie I have no idea what the original copy looked like but they scanned the original negative reel they remastered the audio and it just looks absolutely fantastic to the point where I'm I'm very tempted to to buy this if uh, Synapse Films puts out a physical release of it because it was so nice to look at and also the artwork in this is just phenomenal it's got some really great imagery Stuff that I I have to assume was an inspiration to Peter Jackson in his Ring Wraiths in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Obviously, Tolkien wrote about them first, but the the actual look of them looks so much like the creatures from this film. So I don't know who inspired who, but definitely one worth checking out, especially if you are a fan of uh, B-films or exploitation-type films, that sort of thing. I just want to add a little note about zombies, actually. So I, I wanted to watch this, but again, one of those things that just didn't have the time to. Um, it only played for like a few days. Yeah, so. but I I did an interview with uh, a documentary director, Maya Enick Bedward. I did it for um, her documentary, Why We Fight. It's a short that's also on CBC, actually. Um, and she was telling me about her future project uh, that is called Black Zombie. And it talks about the origins of the quote-unquote zombie like the the idea of a zombie and it actually comes from haitian folklore and it's a representation Mm -hmm. of slavery like it's a metaphor of slavery um the zombie was initially meant to be like an enslaved person so there's a a land there's a master and, and you you turn the master turns people into zombies and then they make them toil the land forever like they just work on the land forever and that's kind of where the idea of it came from. And um, I was really fascinated by it. And I'm, you know, I'm promoting something that isn't even out there yet. But it's I, I found it so interesting. And apologies if I if I butchered the story a little bit there. But um, from what I remember, that that's what it was. And it, I I always I had no idea that was the origin of what a zombie was or where it came from. Yes. Yeah. I. I... I, I probably should have also talked about that in my in my review and stuff like that. I am aware that the the historical implications of of zombie creatures uh, definitely go back much further than the 1970s and George A. Romero. He did not invent it. It's more so that was sort of the interpretation the yeah. and the yeah the the new interpretation and in sort of mindless being sort of sort of creature. Uh, but yes, the the historical 
implication of zombie does go back much further. And there was quite a few, including some, some Hollywood films as well uh, that, that came out in the thirties and forties that dealt with that. It has to do with, you know, um, not witchcraft, but um, uh, like hoodoo and mm-hmm. voodoo and mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. Yeah. Where that's, that's where the basis of that really comes from. And just the, 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 idea behind what is a zombie has changed over time it's fascinating you are absolutely correct it's absolutely fascinating to me though like i i really hope like i she said that she was i think it's like going to be filmed like i don't think it's just kind of sitting in the wings of production um i think it it is has like a green light and it's going to go ahead and be done so i think it, it sounds like a fascinating documentary though and something that I had no idea about it and considering how prevalent zombies are to Hollywood um, and the different interpretations that we've had, it it would be really cool to see. So, and I I think it's fascinating to watch kind of older zombie movies or like, you know, you guys, this is an older episode now, but I was listening to an older episode of ContraZoom where you guys talk about Dracula. And I like, I love that. I like like going back and looking at the older interpretations of these different monsters um, and how that interpretation has developed over the years to what we have them today. I think it's pretty fascinating stuff. Well, maybe we'll have to do something like that in the future. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you saw several more movies that I didn't see, but there's two in particular that you want to highlight. Which uh, which ones did you want to talk about? So leading on from Glass House, actually kind of a similar vein, is another South African movie called Indemnity. Oh, thanks. time if I was asked, but now I'm ready to come back. You know my hands are tied until sight clears. How many times have we seen this? Guys would rather sit back and watch their lives fall apart <laughs> instead of getting the help that they need. Theodore Abrams, when our units arrived, we found his wife had been murdered. It's nothing like Glass House, other than they're both made by South African, they're both South African um, features. Uh, this is a feature debut as well. Um, the director is Travis Tott. It's a big action set piece movie. It init- It starts out with uh, a former firefighter who's dealing with some trauma and some PTSD. And they talk about the stigma of mental health. One day he wakes up and his wife is dead next to him. And he becomes kind of the public enemy number one for that crime. And he's on a run. And as... He is on the run for his own life um, and because he doesn't remember what happened the night before. Um, he ends up uncovering like a big map of conspiracy theories and uh, kind of government secrets. So it's a pretty cool movie. I really enjoyed the action in it. I'm a big action movie person. So the fights and the choreography are absolutely out of this world like they're so 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 good and it sh- i should make a note here that um the actor whose name is jared Hadold, he performed all of his stunts like he did everything which includes a 21 story drop out of a hotel window sorry he doesn't drop oh. 21 stories i should clarify that he is up 21 stories in a hotel building in south africa in cape town um and he's hanging from it literally like and that actually is him and the cool thing about action movies where the actor is capable of doing their own fights and their own stunts 
is that the filming of it can be that much better. You don't have to do wide shots all the time. You don't have to be concerned with covering their faces um, or putting bad wigs on, on uh, stunt people. You can actually just film the actor doing their thing. And this is definitely one of those where uh, the, the filming of it works really, really well with the, with the fight and the choreography. And it's definitely got a nineties action feel to it. Um, which I say with like the most, the highest of compliments, because I think nineties action was a real golden age. So I think we mix the golden age of, of nineties with what we have today um, of real stunts, like real action, real fighting. And it just makes for a really exciting film. And one of the cool things kind of coming out of South Africa right now is this breakthrough of genre movies, like things that go beyond just a drama about apartheid. And Kelsey talks a little bit about that in our interview with her. And uh, Travis also had thoughts on that as well when I interviewed him. And it's, it's really nice to see like a country of filmmakers, young filmmakers, a, a whole generation breaking out of a pigeonhole effectively and making movies that they want to see. Um, m- making movies that they were fans of. So yeah, Indemnity is a cool one to check out. It's just a great action movie. Um, yeah, really fun stuff. I-, I quite enjoyed that one. Well, take that, Tom Cruise. Yeah, I just saw actually before we started recording that he 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 has his own stunt um, in Mission Impossible Seven of being on a motorcycle, riding it off the cliff, and then he has a parachute and pulls his own parachute. And apparently that's him. Whoa. So maybe not take that Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah. Tom Cruise yeah. is like, um, hang out a building. I did that in Mission Impossible 1. Like, give me a break. What's that? Someone is trying to one-up me? I know, no, right? Not on my watch. But it's cool. Like, I, I like this idea of action movies being, like, action stars actually being capable of doing their own stunts. I mean, obviously some things yeah. we have to hold back and just like re- like tom cruise i think he does need to relax at some point like he's gonna get really i'm surprised <laughs> it's shocking to me that he hasn't been more injured in his career um but i guess that just shows like they take it very seriously and they're very safe about it right like they're incredibly safe about it although he does have i i heard a funny anecdote from this is going a little bit off piece here but a funny anecdote from uh tom cruise was he was talking to i think it was matt damon i think it was where i heard it from where he wanted to get this stunt done and and um the stunt coordinator was like we can't do this like insurance just won't do it so he goes so i got another stunt coordinator like cruz just doesn't care he just finds the people who will say yes to him so that he can go out and do it um but obviously make it as safe as possible but it's it's cool action movies are are having a really nice moment right now and i hope that this is a trend that continues on for a very very long time me too now, what was the other movie that you wanted to talk about? The other movie is called Blue Whale, and I'm just going to put a little bit of a caveat here, and maybe, Dakota, you can timestamp it, but there is a bit of a trigger warning. There is talk about uh, self-harm and suicide in this movie. So if you don't want to hear about that or if those things um, kind of set you off, then maybe fast forward. I'll give it a couple minutes. Give me give me two minutes to talk about this movie. Um, so it's a movie that is inspired by a real-life social media challenge from 2016 that was in Russia. Very unfortunate. It was a, a online challenge that was kind of encouraging young people to commit suicide. And it was a game that they put where they had like 50 tasks and you have to, uh, and they start off really, really innocuous, like just, Oh, you know, 
paint this or do this. And then it slowly and progressively becomes more and more dangerous, including, you know, cut yourself uh, and on video and show it. And then the last task, if you will, um, was kill yourself. And it's a really weird it's weird. Like it's a very strange challenge that came up um, that was very heavy throughout Eastern Europe in particular. It was never confirmed that there were people who actually did um, die because of this challenge. But the fact that it exists is quite unsettling. Like it's one of those movies that it's the fact that that it's based in reality is to me the most disturbing part of it. Um, in terms of the movie itself, it's what they call a screen life genre, meaning that the entire film takes place on uh, the main character's desktop. It's uh, done through a series of like Facebook. It's not called Facebook, but their version of Facebook, um, instant messaging, FaceTime, those types of things. Um, and that's how the story is told. So other movies that have done that are like profile and searching, uh, which is probably one of the better ones. Those I've I've been very interested in those kinds of movies because I think it's an interesting way to tell a film, uh, especially in modern day. And this entire challenge, if you will, internet challenge. I hate calling it a challenge because it's not a challenge. It shouldn't be called a challenge. Um, but it, it's it's pretty disturbing that anybody would come up with it um, to begin with, and it just shows you effectively like the negative power that social media or the internet in general can have, especially on a younger generation who might be a bit more impressionable, not to sound patronizing. Um, but we've all been there. We've all been young. So it's, it's an interesting movie. If you're able to kind of stomach the content of it or at the very minimum, you know, you could go and look up kind of what inspired it because it is, it is an interesting social concept, I guess. And like a, a good, a, a, bit of a disturbing snapshot of where we are as a society. Interesting. Yeah. That, that was one I wasn't able to catch because it had expired as well, as we've mentioned with several of the other links, but yeah, the way, uh, the way you're framing it sounds really interesting. And I am, I am a little disappointed that I wasn't able to catch it then. It's, it's good. I'm mean, like, as a pure movie, I can't say it's like the greatest thing ever. Like in terms of, if you just want to look at it as a thriller, like there is a bit of a whodunit mystery involved in, in it. And that does keep you kind of engaged enough. Um, but to me, the most kind of compelling part of it is more of just the reality that it's, it's based on. That's more of the, the aspect of the film that draws me into it and why I wanted to talk about it. But as a film itself, like it's okay. Like if you're just looking at it, it's like, is it a good movie? Is it a good thriller? It's okay. But the concepts behind, <laughs> like, but the story behind it is more of what is, is interesting. Um, and it is a Russian movie. Uh, so yeah, there are subtitles, but oddly when they're typing on the screen, all in English, which I found kind of weird mm-hmm. to be honest, but when they're speaking, I wonder if because it was all CGI that they're able to adapt that for the international audience. Oh, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. Yeah, I didn't think about that. I, I thought that was really funny, though, that like all the typing is in English, but when they speak, it yeah. isn't. It is in Russian. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah, maybe they they are adapting it to to thing because you're already reading it on screen. So why would you need yeah. subtitles for screen? Subtitles for the subtitles, subtitles for subtitles. Yeah, it's interesting. But yeah, yeah no, I mean it's 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 interesting. If you're interested in screen life genre movies. Um, that's, it's like kind of, it's, it's produced by the same guy. Um, apologies if I butcher his last name, but is, uh, Timur Bekmambetov. 
That's probably a really bad mm-hmm. reading of it. But he's been the kind of the biggest proponent of this type of filmmaking. Um, what do you think of that type of filmmaking, by the way? Have you have you seen Searching, I feel like? I don't know why. Yeah, Searching, I think, is the only yeah. one that I've seen. I haven't seen any of the other types of films like that, like Unfriended. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm blanking on what the other ones Profile, are. Profile, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a bit of a crutch i feel mm-hmm. like where i don't know like it's it's a unique way of making a movie maybe because i haven't seen enough of it i can't really say but it almost feels like hey you get you get one chance to make a really good movie version of this and then after that they're all going to be kind of derivative and and so yeah. so they don't it doesn't really interest me i'd ra- like a bit of a hold up for me with watching beyond the infinite two minutes was I I'm not a, also a big fan of like single location movies in this movie mm. beyond the infinite two minutes only takes place in this cafe and then the apartment above the cafe because it was shot during the pandemic. So they couldn't have a big wide ranging set. So I'm not really a fan of like single set movies. I, I don't know if it's because I get bored <laughs> or what is it, but I, I, I like a bit more variety in what I'm looking at basically. It's interesting. Cause like one of the big, um, one of the big issues I have with the screen life movies is they do switch locations, but it's very unnatural. <laughs> like if, for instance, if like, okay, you're trying to catch a criminal, like if that that's your whole, you're trying to build evidence against somebody. So obviously you want to record them, but there comes a point where if your life is in danger, you're not going to keep holding your laptop, especially open. You're not going to have it open to your face, <laughs> like to show you all the time. So that kind of takes mm-hmm. me out of screen life movies um, at times because it's very unnatural for you to be holding a laptop upright and running. And why? Like you would close it in real life. If you were genuinely in danger, you would close it and you wouldn't be bothering recording because you're kind of running for your life. Um, one thing that I'll say though is with searching profile, blue whale, uh, unfriended to an extent. The cool thing about those movies is they're they're kind of naturally like they naturally lend itself to a screen life. Like it's not like it doesn't feel that forced. There was one actually, I think it was at South by Southwest that I didn't manage to catch. It was a an updated version of Romeo and Juliet, and they did that as a screen life movie. And I was really curious to watch that one because that to me doesn't seem like it fits naturally. Whereas blue whale is about a social media kind of apparition or whatever, like something that happened online searching was a man, his like John Cho is a dad trying to figure out where his, her, his uh, daughter is. And then you have profile, which again took place over Skype. Like it was a true story about a journalist and who connected with them with the extremists and um, ISIS extremists and, it was all done on Skype, like in real life. That's how it, the story planned it. Uh, that's how the story was in real life. So those types of things work well, I suppose, for for screen life. Um, but yeah, you're right. After I've seen like a couple now, I've seen actually quite a few now. It's they do feel really derivative of each other, and I just kind of feel like I'm watching the same movie at times. Yeah, that's that's completely fair. All right, so now we're going to kind of move on and, and talk about a bit about the awards, uh, much like. Every other festival, uh, Fantasia Fest does give out awards for the movies, and they had different juries for for different prizes and things like that. So I'm only going to highlight the awards given out to movies that we have seen. Some of them uh, we didn't actually end up talking about. So if you have any very quick thoughts on them, then we'll share them. But other than that, I'll just kind of quickly skim through it. 
Uh, best screenplay went to Mark O'Brien for The Righteous, and that was one that I was hoping to see, but you ended up seeing. Uh, you were kind of mixed on a little bit. Uh, I know you were kind of wondering, were you the one missing something <laughs> since all the reviews seemed to be so positive for it? Yeah, I feel like I missed something on that one. Everybody loved it. Like every, I, I think genuinely everybody in the festival who watched it really loved it. I think it was, it kind of is kind of like The Green Knight to me, like, Technically, it's a great movie. Like, I, I see it. It's beautiful. The way it's shot is really cool. Um, it just didn't really connect with me. But it is, like, I can objectively say I think it is a good movie. It's just not one for me. I will have no slander of the Green Knight on this podcast. <laughs> objectively, Green Knight is a great movie. I can, I can understand. There we go. It is objectively great. <laughs> Uh, and then another movie that you saw that I didn't got two awards, and that was Hellbender. Mm. It won Best Score and Best Actress for Zelda Adams. Uh, can you can you sort of briefly talk about either of those things? Uh, score, yeah, hundred percent. It, it's incredible. Like the Hellbenders, it's it's a very family or it's the Adams family, which I thought was kind of funny because they do horror movies. Um, they are like a some other husband, wife, and daughter team, and they literally make the whole movie themselves with a, with the help of some other people to do um, uh, practical effects and, and those types of things. But in general, they write and direct and act and score and film it, everything themselves. Uh, Hellbender is a very micro budget indie horror movie that I know will have a lot of fans. A lot of people will like it. Zelda Adams, I think that's the mother or no, is that the daughter? No, that was Izzy, the daughter. It's the daughter, yeah. She's yeah, she's very, very good in it, actually. Yeah, she is very, very good in it. And good for that. I, I think it's cool. Like I I like I mean, you might get the trend here. I like underdog stories. So I think it's cool that there's like a family out there who loves making movies together. Um, and they they do genuinely do it themselves. So I think that that's pretty neat. Um, the score is incredible, though, of Hellbender. I actually, if they put that out on vinyl, I would take that. Nice. Only on vinyl, though, because I am like a, only, only on vinyl, obviously. We're, we were talking about earlier, <laughs> you're mentioning a limited amount of physical media that you own. There is no limit to vinyl. No, no, vinyl is, is it's but it's particular, though, right? Like, you want to have particular things on vinyl. And Hellbender, sure. Hellbender's, like, uh, Hellbender's score would be excellent on vinyl. So check out my other podcast, I was say. Digging, where I interview people about their record collections. <laughs> Quick plug. Uh, yeah, quick plug there. <laughs> um, so then uh, an, another film uh, that won two awards was Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes. It got a special mention for the New Flesh Awards for debut films. Love that title. <laughs> and it also won the uh, Audience Award for Asian Feature. So yeah, I'm I'm very happy that I got both of those. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm obviously I don't know how many of the different movies were were by debut filmmakers, but I'm very glad that this one, which very clearly showed the director's stamp of what they were trying to do. Uh, the director's name was uh, Junta Yamaguchi, who who clearly had an idea of what they were doing, and like I, I almost want to say this during our review of it, where if you thought. Tenet or Inception were kind of hard to follow at times as far as writing a script out. I cannot imagine what it was like writing the script and directing Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes because it just kind of blew my mind. I think that's the cool thing about that movie is like all of it together, like even if it was an experienced filmmaker, you'd be like, wow, that's really cool. Like that's really neat. Then you find out that it's his first movie and that's just kind of mind blowing that like out of the gate, you're going to be that creative and um, that innovative is pretty impressive. 
So how long until Christopher Nolan buys the rights to this film so that way he can remake it? I mean, now I'm trying to think of like a Chris Nolan movie like this. That would be like Leonardo. Obviously it'll be an action film. Yeah. And there would be like some weird Russian gangster coming in with a really bad accent. No offense, Kenneth Branagh, (laughs) but (laughs) no offense. You're a great actor, but yeah, no, that that didn't work. But yeah, I could see Chris Nolan doing that. He, could, he totally did. Like he didn't yeah. he uh, didn't he? I don't think he bought it. I think he just kind of copied it. But the paprika, the yep. like that's basically Inception. So I don't think he bought the rights for that. So yeah, Nolan might his might mm-hmm. his next movie just might be about an infinite time loop. Yes, uh, and then the last one that won an award that we saw uh, was Woodland's Dark and Days Bewitched, Yay. won Best Documentary uh, for the Audience Award. So, as we have both raved about this movie on on multiple podcasts now, this is really one that you should see, and you can pre-order it on Severin's website, and it looks really cool. Yeah. If you don't want to spend, I'm not going to announce how much you spent on that <laughs> box set. I'm guessing you didn't get the like crazy one because that was for U.S. residents only. Well, okay, so. Yeah, there's so there's two boxes. There's one that is just the the DVDs, and they include CDs as well, which made me kind of laugh because like, you can have the score. And I thought I don't have a CD player anymore, but um, <laughs> but uh, they have another collection which is the box set plus. There's like a plate, I want to say, mm-hmm. and a movie poster, and I think a book as well i could be wrong but i think oh no i think i get the book as well i think i get the book as well um but it definitely has like more it has more stuff and it's right now they're saying it's only available for u.s customers because you have to pay you can't bundle them together you have to buy them separately which i actually find kind of odd um and so meaning you can't tack the two shipping together um if you're in the states you can't just put the two shipping costs as one you're going to get charged shipping on both. But if you want to ship it internationally outside of the States, they say it's fine, but you have to email them and shipping will be a hundred dollars us. So I did not do that. I did not do that. I will say almost a third of the cost. Ridiculous. Actually, I do find it a little bit ridiculous, but um, yeah, I mean the shipping I paid was, I think I paid 30 bucks for shipping, which is already like, I hate paying for shipping like that, but Mm -hmm. it shows how much I wanted it. Yeah. Well, it's a shame that we're no longer in the same province because I, I definitely know. would drive to your house and steal yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like I said to you, though, that this is what you get. This is what you get for leaving. Yeah. That, that is completely true. <laughs> but that wraps up our coverage of Fantasia Festival 2021. If you haven't already listened to episode 161 Fantasia Fest interviews with the directors of Glass House and Alien on stage, make sure you do so. As I've said, they'll be in the show notes. There's also going to be links to all of our reviews that we have done throughout this festival and different things that we've sort of talked about. I'll try to remember to include everything there. But Rachel, uh, what have you been working on and and where can people find you? You can find all of my stuff at rachelcage.com. Yeah, I did all the reviews for all the movies that we talked about and some extra ones as well. Uh, And I have an interview with Travis Tott who uh, directed Indemnity um, that I'm posting up probably tomorrow morning actually so by the time this episode goes live it will be there so you can go check that out great yeah i'll make sure to include that in the show notes for people to check out now you can follow the show on instagram twitter and facebook at contrazoom pod and if you watched any movies during fantasia fest let us know your thoughts send an email to contrazoompod at gmail.com thank you to eric and kevin smale for the theme music and to stephanie Pryor for the logo design 
If you like to listen to your podcast on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well. Thank you for checking us out.